So last week we went over the lesson of the withered fig tree, and you know, hopefully what you got out of that was that the, the lesson really, I think, uh, uh, better titled from my perspective would be Have Faith in God, right, as we looked at that, and that it was really a lesson on prayer, and, and in the lesson on prayer, it was really about us relying on the power of God to, to remove mountains in our lives. You know, I looked at that text before I really studied it, you know, and I've heard people I had a guy tell me one time that um, that he knew a guy, and I don't know if I shared this with you last week or not, but that he knew a guy that could move mountains. He said he hadn't gotten to where he could move the whole thing at once, but he was getting there. Then he proceeded to tell me that he, this same guy could walk on water. You know, I mean, I couldn't believe this. I was trying to share the gospel with him, and this is what he's coming back with. And he said, yeah, I was saved when I was a teenager, baptized in a Baptist church down in Florida. I was selling something off Craigslist, and this this is the guy that came to buy it. And um, I was like, wow, you know, I tell you what, uh, I didn't say this. I was thinking, I'll meet you over there at Lake Altoona. I'd love to see the guy that can walk on water, you know. I think I know him, too, but it, maybe it's not the same guy that you know. But And then I got to thinking, though, that, you know, I really, um, I, I, I can move a mountain, right, not one wheelbarrow at a time but I can move a pile of dirt from here to there. But that's not what our Lord was talking about, right? He was using hyperbole to move mountains, and he was talking about the problems that we come up with in in our lives, the circumstances that he providentially puts us in, right? And it's all to tap into the power of God. That's what conquers our mountains, if you will, is not us, but it's the power of God operating in our lives as we try and rely on him in in and through prayer. And um, I had a guy at the counseling conference ask me yesterday, a guy that I've known for years, um, he said, do you ever have time? He said, I need to get together with you this week. I've, I've just really been struggling lately that I, I, I've just been in a, in a funk, you know, that I, I don't have... I'm not close to God. I don't know what's going on. And, you know, and I just, I need some guidance. Do you ever have those times? He said to me, and I kid you not, this was yesterday. Friday night I shared in our small group that I'd had one of those times this week. So isn't that interesting that God brought me through that this week and then somebody is struggling with that. You know, isn't that how he works in, um, and how do you think he brought me through it? I mean, do you all have those kind of times where you're like, you know, I, here's how it unfolded for me. For those of you that were a small group Friday night, just you can do something else while I tell this. But um, I was having my quiet time, and I read, and I was done, and I was like, what did I just read? Man, I don't even know. What was that? <sighs> you know, Lord, why why am I feeling so distant from you? What what is going on? You know, the ADD was just firing on all cylinders, right? Bing, 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 bing. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't, you know, I, I say that facetiously. You know, I don't go down that path. But you get my point. My mind's racing. And uh, so I went to an old standby for me, uh, 
which is Proverbs. And, and I read um, uh, in Proverbs 18, um, to start, it was the 18th. And, you know, so I said, okay, I'll read Proverbs 18. Today's the 18th, I'll read this. And I get down to verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I said, okay, God, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. So I just started praying that, you know. And then there was a little footnote that said you know, 2 Samuel 22, 3. So I went over there and I read that. And uh, basically it says the same thing but added a little bit more to it. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And all of a sudden, boom, I was reconnected, right? And so all of that said, to we have those times in our lives, right? And those are those mountains that God puts there that he wants us, as we learned from our text last week, to come to him in prayer and let the power of God remove those from our lives and reconnect us. So that's kind of where we stopped last week, relying on the power of God to remove the mountains in our lives. Now here's Jesus and the disciples. They're going from the withered fig tree that all this just took place at, and they're going back into Jerusalem. So if you'll read with me in Mark eleven twenty seven. Y'all do have those times, right? Or is it just me? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thought something was wrong there. So uh, Mark eleven twenty seven, it says, um, And they came again to Jerusalem. They've just left the withered fig tree. They'd already been on the way we saw last week, and now they're, you know, they're kind of resuming their journey. Uh, how long they were there, I don't know. Uh, you know. Whether it was several minutes or an hour. So verse 27 again, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But, if, but shall we say from man, they were, were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So we've been talking the last couple of weeks, you know, of, why weren't the authorities raised, you know, rising up and trying to figure out, you know, what, what is this guy doing? Well, here they are. They finally have come on the scene, right? And in these confrontations, Jesus addresses the central issue of life. Now, think about this for a minute. I think with the central issue that he's addressing here is what is the final authority over humanity, Right? We've seen in the midst of the cleansing of the temple that Jesus stopped all the commercialism that was going on at the time of the Passover. He halted the offerings and the sacrifices of the Mosaic system. So he's really been pushing them. And now Mark is recording the hostile reaction, finally, of of the religious authorities that were there in Jerusalem. So 
I mean, just think of their tone of voice. You know, again, these are the religious authorities. I, I think they probably had some underpinnings of anger there. You know, by what authority do you think you're doing these things? And, you know, when, when you refine the issue down all the way to the end, I, I think to its essentials, what we have left is the issue of authority in life. So a question is, why is that? Why do we, them, us, every human being, have, a prob- have problems with authority? Why do you think that is? Because we love ourselves. I think, in essence, that's it. We are so selfish, so focused on my own personal wants and desires and perceived needs, perhaps, right? I mean, after all, life revolves around me, doesn't it? And, uh, I mean, if you could think back, those of you that have children, you know, the the as children push from a tiny age, don't they? I mean, from a tiny age, they're, they're bucking our authority. I just, it's, it's an amazing thing to me. I've heard Paul Tripp give this illustration of, you know, you got to, when does it really start, moms? Two, 18 months to two, somewhere around there. You know, you got this tiny little creature. You know, kids crack me up when, if you really look at their build, uh, from my perspective, they got these huge torsos. You ever notice that? And their legs are about that long, you know, and they got these giant upper bodies. Anyway, they stand there, a tiny thing, 18 inches to two feet tall, and they, and, and they got a, you know, a five-foot-four mom, and they bow up. Ah, like, what are you going to do, you know? You ever think about that? Or even to dad, you know? And... Uh, why? Because they're, they're pushing the authority. They want to be in charge. Well, that never changes, does it? I mean, you know, we continue our lives like that. And then, you know, when you enter into a culture such as we're in now and the, the movies and the music that the majority of young people are listening to now is so anti-authority that you've got an even worse problem, you know, that people are you know the the you know the issues that you see on the news between the uh, civil authorities and mankind. So we, we we bow up on that, and it's selfishness is it. That's that's the root of it. So same thing was going on here, and um, so they they came again to Jerusalem as we read in verse twenty seven, walking in the temple, chief priests and the scribes and the elders come. This again, as we said last week, this is all part of the third public entrance into Jerusalem. So it's Tuesday, and this is, uh, you know, we said the Passion Week, and again, uh, that the week of suffering for our Savior. And Jesus is walking in the temple, which was a very common thing, and this would have been in the, in the porch area, the colonnades, they call it, that this was taking place. And it was probably on most of the commentaries say on Solomon's porch, which was on the east side of the temple. And according to scripture, again, a very common place for a rabbi to be teaching. And these these colonnades offered protection from the weather so they could still teach, even if, you know, if the weather, if it was inclement outside, they wouldn't have to halt their teaching. And um, John, this to show that this was a very common area for teaching in 
two texts that don't refer to this even particular uh, situation show that it happened. John chapter 10, verse 22 says, at, the time, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jer- Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Acts 5.12 says, Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. So even the apostles taught there, and, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So as he had done throughout his ministry, Jesus is, is following the typical rabbinic method of teaching. Walking, and here in this situation, there were thousands, tens of thousands of people milling around. How many of them were actually you know, walking with him, we, we don't know the groups that were in there, but he, he's walking and people are following. Luke's account tells us that, that he was preaching and teaching. And uh, in chapter 20 of Luke in verse 1, that he was preaching and teaching as he walked around the temple. So as we've seen, Jesus' powerful teaching, right? His powerful teaching had effect on people and, and so these leaders, they, they were enraged and alarmed. You know, we have got to do something. So we see that there's three groups of them in our text here. You have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. So these are three groups that make up the component part of the Sanhedrin. And I don't, the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 guys and. <coughs> All of these different groups, 71 in total. I don't think all 71 of them are what came here. They were probably hand-picked representatives. You know, you're going to probably pick the top guys in each category for your, um, for your attack, basically, right? And, and so you had the, I think it would have been a very imposing delegation. I mean, think if you were going to confront somebody uh, you know, and you had a whole group of guys, you probably want to send your most, you know, opposing power, you know, the guys that can orate the best, the guys that know what they're talking about the most, you know, the, the, the top of the line, really, from your perspective. So the first group, the chief priest, of course, that would have included, as we said a few weeks ago, Caiaphas, because he was the high priest. He undoubtedly was there. And then his venerated father-in-law, Annas would have been there as well, I'm sure with a few others. Then the scribes, these were a group of guys that represented the, uh, the interpretation of the law of Moses. You know, so, I mean, they're bringing the, the intellectual high powers against Jesus to try and trip him up. <clears throat> and then the elders that were there, that's, they weren't like the elders of the churches today. These were the officially appointed guys, the heads of the state kind of like the governors, if you will, of the states. And they didn't answer to anybody but the authorities in Rome. So you got this delegation of the Sanhedrin coming, and they want to know by what authority are you doing these things. Now, if you think about this, this was a very legitimate question, right? I mean, if somebody were to come, like we've got the guest speaker, uh, Keith Palmer, this morning, if he, you know, was preaching heresy or from heresy maybe from our perspective or is something we'd never heard you know what authority are you using you know what how are you getting to this point so very legitimate question they have here they were angry of course but they were asking with the right motives because they were concerned about the uh 
their position of being the supervisors of the religious life of Israel. They were in charge of that. They want to know, what is your authority? You know, who, who gave you this right? Basically, they were saying, show us your credentials, right? Who ordained you? Um, you know, we, um, we have a trustworthiness of the guy that's speaking this morning because we know what his credentials are. We know where, where he went to, to school. Um, you know, if, uh, if, he, if somebody came that, um, well, what's a really bad seminary? Uh, you know, if somebody came that had been to a, an extremely liberal seminary, you know, the school of Joel Osteen, you know, we're probably not, not probably not, we're not going to let him teach, right? So, um, but... We know this guy's credentials, so you know we're going to let him teach our our people this morning. So that that's all these guys, at least right here, right now, wanted to know. You know, we got to protect the people. Who are you coming in here and doing all this? But also, there was definitely, without question, an underpinning of let's trip him up, let's make him look like a fool, right? So I think there, this was could have also included an, an attempt to embarrass him. If he didn't have any credentials, then the people would lose respect, and then they would get the respect back on them. Because after all, you know we can't have the crowd leaving and going over there, and uh, which, you know, really brings up a, an interesting point for. Um, I think for elder boards, perhaps, of churches uh, today of, you know, are we going to change in order to gain congregants, right? I mean, a lot of churches shift their beliefs as time goes by if a new show shows up in town and start, everybody starts flocking over there. You know, well, maybe we ought to become like them, right, rather than sticking to the truth. And and so if they could make it seem as if Jesus didn't have any credentials, then people might quit following him, and then they, you know, they would be back in control again. Or <clears throat> perhaps if Jesus considered himself authorized to do these things that he'd been doing, he, he, he was uh, saying that, you know, only that everybody knew that only God had the right to do these things. So maybe they could trap him to look like he was uh, blasphemous towards God because, you know, if you don't have the credentials and God's the only one that can do these things, then you're claiming to be God and uh, therefore we can trap you and the people will quit following you because you're blaspheming God. So. You know, you had all that going on. Legitimate question, but the underpinnings of deception and hypocrisy to try and trip them up there to gain the favor back from the people to themselves. <clears throat> so the, the, these things there, of course, undoubtedly refers to the cleansing of the temple, which was a visible attack of, upon the, their authority. But, you know, I'm sure this was a prime opportunity to just pound his entire ministry, which from their viewpoint had been something that they were deeply concerned and in conflict with for a long time, right? I mean, here's our opportunity. You know, we've been waiting, and now we need to hit him. 
So let's, the cleansing of the temple is kind of the icing on the cake. We've got to do this now. I mean, he has disrupted everything, and we've got to get him out of the way. Mm-hmm. I think it, in their minds they would have been justified, right? Um, and and what was the first question? Did they have a preconceived notion? Yes. If they, if they saw John's baptism of Christ and the doves descending and mm-hmm. God speaking from heaven, surely they, they must have had some idea. Yes, they did. And we're going to look at it in a minute. Lots of, in Mark, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight instances that, that I came up with that show um, this back and forth, this attack by the opponents and then the answer. So, yeah, this was just another one of those. And so, yeah, I think all along they were, they, they, pre, they, they knew what, what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. And it was all about trying to trip him up and to get the focus off of him. They could, they could, feel the well it's hopefully this isn't too far of a stretch it's kind of like the political thing today right you know as soon as some candidate's starting to get a little more attention the you know the other guys are firing right at them so jesus has got attention now everybody saw what happened you know i can't even buy a dove for my sacrifice now because he shut down that whole system so it was a big deal so the leaders want, at this point in time, to to find some way to trip him up. So, yeah, I think it was planned out, you know. That, uh, yes, sir? I, was gonna, I don't know the exact answer, but if you think back when, um, you know, the first few chapters, when Jesus mm-hmm. was doing rapid fire, miracle after miracle, and casting out demons, and healing the blind, and all these things, right? And then even in just chapter 3, it says... Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him with how they might destroy him. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking in my mind, this is probably two or three years later. I yeah. think they didn't know what his answer was going to be. They, they probably put these men up to, hey, look, 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 he's back in the temple. Let's, let's ask this question. It's going to undermine mm-hmm. him. And then he just, in two sentences, ties him in a knot. That's yeah. how I see it. Yeah. I, I think they had planned this out. How would it undermine out. them? Well, I think they would have gone to the attack then, which the timing wasn't right for that. Uh, well, yeah, I don't Nicod- know. Nicodemus, uh, one of the Pharisees, acknowledged that no one can do these things except that mm-hmm. they came from God. Right. So, yeah. so whether or not after he acknowledged that he went back and was with them, we don't know, I don't think. So, um, yeah. Because. And this was a very common practice. That's what we're going to look at in a second here. 
of, of the rabbis did this a lot. They're asked a question, they answer with a question. And that's what we're going to look at. So that's kind of what was back and forth, back and forth. And so they wouldn't have been shocked by his response because they'd heard that before. You know, the back and forth, like you said. Do you think they wanted him to say God so they could mm-hmm. tell him the and kill him and have some sort of justification? They mm-hmm. didn't want him to say, I'm doing this by God. Yeah. And so they, so they can have an excuse. Yeah. Give him that, that yeah. They. I was thinking about too. You know, just later on in the passage, Mark gives us their reasoning, right? Mm-hmm. About how if they if if they tell him John the Baptist, you know, did this by the Lord, you know, they think, well, he's going to say, well, why don't you listen? To That's him? right. Why didn't you believe him? Yeah. 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 Why didn't you believe? If if it was from God, why did you not believe? And then they're on the spot with that. Then their hypocrisy is. And that's something yeah. I just thought about too. Is you know, in Matthew, which is during the Sermon on the Mount, after the Sermon <clears throat> on the Mount, in Matthew, Matthew says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Mm-hmm. So I think a big part of this as well is these scribes, as we all know, they were prophets, like they loved. And they flaunted it. And they flaunted it. So when they when they started to recognize that the people had the ability to see that this guy had real authority and our scribes are nothing, I think that they were really threatened. Like, yeah, they're panicking. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So they were concerned about his, from their perspective, his unauthorized actions. And... Um, the answer that Jesus gave him, I think, I think is very riveting, right? I mean, it's like a drama scene here. You know, he handles himself so coolly. Now, he doesn't get mad, you know, and, and he's very confident under this pressure, which I don't think I would be. <laughs> I don't think any of us would be. So he, in verse 29, he turns the tables on the interrogators, and he wants their credentials, and he says, uh, I'll ask you one question. They asked two. He only asked one. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Right? He ends it with answer me. So the counter question, very common method among rabbis. And it was used to force the questioner, the original questioner, to consider the issue that they were asking at a deeper level. In this case, Jesus' counter-question was totally intended to, to unmask their hypocrisy. And Mark, as I said, gives us, let's look at several of these accounts of Jesus using the counter-question uh, when they were opposing him. The first one is in chapter 2. If you'll turn there, chapter 2 and um, verse 7, the, uh, the, the opponent's attack. And uh, they say uh, in Mark 2, 7, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right. Then he answers, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they, spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to him, said to them, Why do you question 
these things in your hearts. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he, there's the question. He comes back with an answer. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answers. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come, and the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth and an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old, and, the, and a worse tear is made. So again, can you see? Would you be frustrated? You ask a question, boom. And so these guys, I mean, we wouldn't be because we know it's Jesus speaking, but these guys, they're freaking out, right? Because it's just time and time again. Look at verse 24. Um, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answers back and said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and and those who were with him? He, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is, which is it not lawful for any of, but the priest to eat? And also he gave it to those who were with him. So again, you have that. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. Another question. And the scribes who came down from Jer- Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And then uh, chapter 8 is another one. In verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Right, so they ask, he asks, chapter 10, verse 2. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he gives the answer. Jesus comes back in verses 3 through 12, but in 3 the question, and he answered them, Why did Moses, what did Moses command you? And uh, then chapter 11, 27 and 28 that we're looking at. And then chapter 12 is another one, verse 18 through 13. So you see that this is a common practice that, that uh, the people ask the, you know, it's, but they're trying to attack and they're asking. But Jesus answers with a question. So these guys, you know, they're on the attack here in Mark 11. They faced a dilemma. They were trying to destroy Jesus, and they thought for sure this was their opportunity. The account in Luke in 19, I'll read verse 47, 48, I got here. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So you get the picture. 
the people are liking it. They're just enthralled, and the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders don't like it because they want the power. They're 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 thinking they're getting trumped, right? Not <laughs> maybe they think they are too, but um, right? They're furious because they couldn't take any action against him because his teaching was just absolutely captivating the people, right? So his counter question was the baptism of John from heaven or from man, answer me. That basically put them right at, you know, the uh, proverbial rock in the hard place. Here they are. Uh Uh-oh. Man, that was stupid. Why did we do that, you know? The phrase, the baptism of John, actually uh, was not just the baptism of John baptizing Jesus, but it was encompassing all of John's ministry that they certainly would have known, right? His preaching, his teaching, his calling the people to repent. And probably most importantly, though, was the fact that he proclaimed Jesus Jesus as the Lamb of God, the Messiah. Now, I always think of um, back in, I think it's in John one twenty nine, when John the Baptist is out in the wilderness with some of his some of the Jewish leaders, whether these guys were part of that, I, I don't know, but these were some of the Jewish leaders who were out in the wilderness with John the Baptist. Jesus is walking by, and John turns, and he says, hey, God, this is a paraphrase, but he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But, you know, that would be like us today. Hey, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To a Jewish mind, that was huge, right? You know, I, I've, I've taught that verse years ago in, in in this ministry I had in downtown Atlanta and and I, I asked the question, I said, Well what do you think uh he meant by that? You know, did was Jesus somehow miraculously transformed into a lamb and they look and there's a lamb walking by? You know, of course not, right? But think of the impact that that had in the mind of a Jew. You know, this was the Passover lamb that takes away not just the sins of this particular family that's offering the lamb, but the sins of the world. Their minds would have gone back to Exodus, right, and the Passover. That's where a Jew mind would go with that. And John the Baptist claimed that about Christ. Therefore, for Jesus to ask that question made really struck home with these guys. You know, uh-oh, <laughs> we're in trouble now, right? Jesus is challenging them to say whether John's ministry was divine or was it human. Which one was it? You know, that that was a a directness that I think only Jesus could have pinpointed. I don't think man could point the pen that sharp against these guys. You know, they, they had just, they thought they had just put Jesus on the spot, but with one response he flips it on them again and puts them on the defensive. So it drove them into a corner. Obviously, they didn't want to answer because they thought if they answered, you know, we're going to lose something here, right? So they go into a huddle. You know, they get over here and they start talking about what are we going to do in in verses 31 and 32. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, then... Why then did you not believe him? But 
shall we say, for man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So the baptism of John had a heavenly source, and you know what? As we said, they knew that if they replied that way, that Jesus would then say, as we said a minute ago, then why in the world did you not believe it? If it was from God, why, you being the religious leaders, did you not believe it? On the other hand, if they came back, which probably most of them believed anyway, with the, that the baptism of John was from man, then the general public, who was liking what Jesus was teaching, then they would have been hostile towards him, right? Because, well, wait a minute, you know, we like John. What are you talking about? So, because the general public, you know, they thought John was a prophet. So these religious leaders, they start to reason among themselves as to their answer. And, of course, really, their decision was dishonest, wasn't it? Um, Surprisingly dishonest. They didn't say, you know, we don't want to answer your question. That would have been the most honest thing to say, right? Well, we're not going to answer you and just walk away. That at least would have been honest. They would have been telling the truth. But they didn't. They answer, we don't know. You know, that's, think about how disgraceful that answer is. You know, they automatically disqualify themselves with that answer as to being the judges and the authority concerning Christ. He really basically had just right then, right there, caught them in their own hypocrisy. And he made them look ridiculous. You know, I mean, you guys are the leaders for crying out loud. Why don't you know? Why can't you answer? You know, that would be like, um, you know, if you had Shane in here with us and we asked him, you know, a, a you know, not a question like that, but, you know, a, a question that any seminary trained guy would know the answer to it. I don't know you know and we know we we know you know you know I mean that would make the person look ridiculous right so he caught them in their hypocrisy he said to them well then neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things you know if they'd have been willing to face the truth I think he would have gladly answered right their trouble of course was not in their intellect but in their stubborn will, which really shows that it was a heart problem, right? Which, you know, that's where it all goes on, isn't it? So when, when we say a heart problem, what is the heart? You know, we throw that word around a lot. It's not the, right? What is it? What is it? Pride is, well, pride is manifested through it, right? But what is the heart itself? What is that? The core of yourself. That's right. Yours individually to you, mine individually to me. And that, I think, can be summed up as, what do you say? Yours individually to you. Um, that could be summed up as your mind, uh, your soul. It, it's who you are. It's who makes you different than me, right? And, and so these, William Barclay says it like this. He says, this whole story is actually a vivid example of what happens to mankind when we will not face the truth. And what keeps us from facing the truth is it's our hearts. It's our own deception. Now, think of the times in your own life when you knew the right thing to do, the right thing to say, and you didn't do it. Right? Has that ever happened to you? You know, and where does that come from? 
It comes from our hearts. Some of my favorite passages on the heart, I probably use these verses I'm going to mention here more than any others in discipling people. More than any others. Proverbs 14, 12. Anybody know that one? There is a way that seems right to Tim Brown. Put you in there, right? But the end thereof is what? Death, destruction. Well, guess what? Wise Solomon, and he was very wise, repeats the same one word for word in 1625, Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to man or woman, but the end thereof is the way of death. So that's, that's, those are verses that, that we need to have ingrained in our hearts that when we start to think wrong and make wrong heart decisions that, that the Holy Spirit, if you've got it memorized, then the Holy Spirit can bring it up to use it in your life. Another one is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That's right. Trust in the Lord, not in yourself, right? And then Proverbs 4.23. Do you think Solomon had a little wisdom going on? Guard your hearts with what? All diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Everything you think comes out of your heart. And when we studied uh, Mark chapter 7, you know, months ago, um, you know, we had what it's not what you put in that defiles you, it's what comes out. And where does what comes out come from? Your heart, right? So here's how it works. And um, it, it all starts with our thinking, right? Every single thing starts with our thinking. You don't just do something, you have at least it flew through your mind for a second anyway before you. Yeah, but it all starts in our thinking. How we think determines what we do, whether we're going to sin or not sin. And then that begins to have an effect on, on how we feel. And better probably said emotions. That our thinking affects our emotions, and then our emotions drive what? Our actions, right? But it all starts here. That's why Paul said, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, Every thought, not every feeling, every thought, not every action, every thought, because our thoughts drive our emotions, which then determine what we're going to do. You know, it's the circle that goes around like that. So we have to control our thoughts. And that's these guys' heart problem as it manifested out here. They were not willing to face the truth. When When you're learning a truth of God and and you're wanting to fight that truth of God, and your mind is starting to go down a path of, well, I don't believe that. I'm going to, you know, that's when you've got to stop it, and you've got to start to train your mind. You know, what does Scripture tell us to, to renew our minds, right? And, and as we start to renew our thinking, we start, our whole being starts to transform and we become, we are new creations in Christ, but we start to live and act like a new creation. But like these guys, it, they had a deep-seated heart problem. They didn't want to face the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So 
so much for their questioning of authority, right? So keep in mind as, as we move forward, um, I had a really hard time transitioning here because this is all one scene, but uh, these, these chapter breaks are man-made, and uh, it makes it convenient for us, but the scene doesn't change. It's all the same. I heard Jay Adams teaching one time, and he said the chapter breaks came back in the day where they were riding a camel or a horse or something, you know, and they hit a pothole in the sand and a pin hit and they, you know, put a period there and that's when the next one comes. But uh, anyway, that this is the same scene goes on forward here, right? So after putting these guys to silence and shame, Jesus proceeded to expose their true character, their wickedness, their bad hearts. You know, he didn't let, interestingly, he, Jesus didn't let the matter rest there. He went on to expose their dishonesty. By their weaseling, conniving little answer, the Jewish leaders showed that they didn't care about the truth. They didn't care about God's authority. The only thing they cared about was their own power, and as we said at the beginning, their own self-interest. That's all they cared about. So he proceeds to expose their corruption by telling a parable. And it's interesting that Despite the crowd's public enthusiasm for him, Jesus knew that in a couple days, what was going to happen? They're all going to turn on him, right? And, uh, but he, he didn't cower down knowing what was coming. He stayed with it. And their desire to kill him in a few days and his understanding of his coming to death really come into picture in this parable in Luke 12. I mean, Mark 12, <laughs> sorry. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 12 real quick. And this, we'll just kind of introduce this, and then we'll pick it up next time. Mark 12, 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to its, to its tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, away, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And this parable really has been referred to often as a judgment parable. Think about that, a judgment parable. So this was intended to devastate them, but at the same time, grace was involved here for this convicting summary of God's dealing with his people was meant to reach their hearts. You know, Jesus was always about reaching the hearts of men. Remember, their unwillingness to answer his question was a heart problem. 
So he comes right back with this parable into their hearts. I, I'm a, just astounded at when I try and think, reading through passages of Scripture like this, that, you know, the, the, the apostles that wrote Scripture were inspired by God. But Jesus is God. So it's not like he was, when he went to speak, he didn't have to, you know, okay, God the Father. You know, and then come back over here and teach them. You know, this was Jesus just rapid fire. He wasn't up the night before, you know, writing notes like we do to, to follow and studying other people. He was just coming with this, Right? reactionary just off of there and it just shows his his godness you know his brilliance and his um uh, his compassion even when people were out for no other purpose than to attack him it shows his love for them he he still wanted them to have their hearts impacted by the truth of the gospel that was really getting ready to unfold. He, you know, he, he desired for them to see him as the Messiah, although their heart's desires were to destroy him. Um, that's a huge lesson for us, right, of our enemies. You know, do, do we really love our enemies like God commands us to? Those that persecute us, do we really love them? Um, you know, do you guys, um, I mean, what, what is the number one way you can love your enemy today? Well, who would be our enemy, you and I today? Pray for them. Pray for them. That's it. Hands down. Somebody said the other night, I have a hard time praying for my enemies, you know, but we're commanded to, right? So who would be, I mean, just in your life, who would be an enemy? Not, you know, some guy over, some, you know, uh, ISIS guy overseas. But today, today, I mean, will you have an enemy in your life today? You know, somebody said, yeah. Who would it be? Sure, you know, pray for him, right? You know, somebody else, an enemy. I'm embarrassed to say who mine would be. Probably don't. I don't know them. Probably never would meet them. So what is that starting to tell you? Who would it be? It'll be. It'll happen. If if no, <laughs> if if I get in a car today, more than likely I'm going to have an enemy. <laughs> right? Because why? As Paul Tripp says, I mean, I pay taxes. This is my road. I'll dare you. You know. I like to be safe distance from the guy in front of me. If I wanted to be that close to the bumper in front of me, I'd be that close. And now you just got me too close to you because you cut in front of me. That's an enemy. You know, that's somebody that I need to pray for. I don't know them, but it calms my heart, my soul. It shows my anger, right? It exposes my heart. God uses people to do that. And so we need to be praying for them. Jesus cared dearly for these guys' hearts, and, and we need to do the same and, and use the actions of others. Let God use the actions of others to expose our own wickedness and not lash out at them, right? 
So we'll pick up there uh, next time. Next week we don't have Bible study, is that correct? We have worship on Easter at a different time, I think 10 o'clock. So be sure you recognize that. All right, so we're dismissed.